Well, good morning. It's great to be back with you uh, this morning for another time in God's Word. And we'll be returning this morning to the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 4. And we'll be taking a look at verses 12 through 17. Now, this morning, we have the opportunity to uh, sort of introduce, if you will, or to examine at least Matthew's introduction of Jesus's public ministry. While we're uh, finding that in our Bibles, I wanted to just kind of begin our time by thinking about the issue of light. We know in the beginning, God created light as the very first thing. The scripture says in Genesis 1, 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And the reason he created light before everything else was because everything else needed light. Light is what makes life possible. That's why God planted. Uh, uh, that's why God created the plants and the animals after he created light. Everything needed light. We we need light to survive. We get nutrients from light. We obviously find warmth from light. We uh, understand ourselves and everything around us because light illumines the world around us. It allows us to see and to understand. Even in dark places, we find security from light. Light does all of those things. It makes life possible. And all of this is why it's such an amazing statement in John's gospel when he opens up the gospel by saying that in Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. So here he's, uh, the life was the light of men. Here he says Jesus was the light, or Jesus was life, and yet he was providing light to everyone else. He was a life that didn't depend on light outside of itself to survive. Here was a life which provided light to everyone else, everyone who would receive him, everyone who would, uh, would welcome him. From his light they receive Life, life eternal. A few verses later in John 1, 9, John goes on to say that, that he was the true light, which coming into the world gives light to every person. He's the one who gives us true light. He, he's the one who illumines. He's the one who helps us to make sense out of the confusion and the darkness of life. He gives light to all of that to those who believe in him. And John describes him as a light shining in the darkness, as he goes on to say, meaning the darkness of our spiritual blindness, the darkness of, of the spiritually hardened and ignorant, those who are dominated by self-delusion and self-deception and sinful self-interest and falsehood and all that came upon us at the fall of humanity. When Adam and Eve were created in the garden and then fell into sin. They brought this curse on all humanity. We fell into darkness. And, and not a darkness that is simply around us, but a darkness, most importantly, that is within us. Our entire thinking process, our, our reasoning, our argument, all of it is faulty because it's built on a foundation other than God. Every man and woman born into this world is born into this world in rebellion against God's laws and against God's ways, wanting to establish themselves as the central authority in their life, wanting to establish themselves as the ultimate judge of what is right and wrong for them, rather than understanding that God is that judge. Jesus comes and John tells us that he was the life, and this life was bringing light to all men. Now, you might expect that kind of light, that kind of 
influence, that kind of ministry, you might say. You might expect that that kind of light would come bursting out of the epicenter of some deeply religious environment. You might expect that that light would come from among those who were known for their devotion to uh, studying the scripture or long hours of prayer, lots of time in uh, religious duties, maybe long hours spent in a church or a temple or some sort of place of worship. You might consider the uh, those to be the houses of light, the sources from where this light would shine. And if you were in ancient Israel, you certainly would have expected that this light would have shined out of the temple in Jerusalem. You would have expected it to come from one of those well-known scribes or priests or rabbis who were associated with the temple and always around the temple. But in fact, it was just the opposite. When the light shined, it did not begin to shine in Jerusalem. It did not begin in the temple. It did not begin at the epicenter of Israel's religious system or among its recognized religious authorities. In fact, as we will see in our passage today, Matthew tells us that the light actually began to shine in Galilee, which was an area outside of the epicenter of Israel's religious life. It was a, a part of the, the, the northern territory in Israel. In the first century, it was considered to be uh, sort of in the backwoods, if you will, when, uh, when the people in Jerusalem hear about Jesus, they begin to question in John chapter 7, can anything good come out of Galilee? It was far from the epicenter, as I said, in religious life in Israel. It was in those days, as in most of its time, it was known as Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the non-Jews, that is to say. And while it was formerly part of Israel's territory, it was considered to be a place of rebellion, a place of sedition, a place of, uh, of unorthodoxy. Even Josephus himself talks about how Galilee had a reputation for having a kind of rebellious spirit against their rulers and really against even religious traditions. And if you were living in ancient Israel and you were not a particularly religious person, this is probably the place where you would want to live. It would have been one of the places where people would have been less conscientious about religious rituals, more, um, more open, we might say less scrupulous about the details of laws. In the ancient world, they would have been known as Hellenists. That is to say, they would have been a culture and society that was more open to the world around them, particularly the world of Roman and Greek culture around them, more so than those who lived down in Jerusalem. This was a place dominated by Gentile culture, by Gentile religion in some cases, and certainly by Gentile people. There were entire cities where there were no Jews at all. The city of Sephoris, the city of Tiberias, where Jews wouldn't even dare enter into the territory. Now we want to talk about the significance of this a little bit more, but before I do that, let's look at our text this morning and hear just at the beginning what Matthew has to say about Jesus' ministry in this territory of Galilee and about the ministry of light. Genesis, excuse me, Matthew 4, uh, verse 12, Matthew tells us, Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. 
And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is Matthew's introduction to Jesus' ministry as light. It, just like a, a John gave us, if you will, a theological introduction to his gospel by referring to Jesus as the light, this is Matthew's introduction to Jesus as the light. But it's a light shining out of a place you wouldn't expect. It's coming from a place where Jews certainly wouldn't have expected it, and he knows that. He knows in his own day there would have been people questioning the origin of Jesus' ministry. And so he gives this passage, at least in part, to explain this. This is his explanation, if you will, his clarification of exactly why this light began to shine in Galilee of all places. And in this passage, Matthew really gives us three explanations of why the light came the way that it did and in the place that it did. Three factors that he gives us here that explain to us why Jesus' ministry was focused in Galilee. The first factor coming in verse 12 provides some of this explanation, and it has to do with the silencing of John the Baptist. The silencing of John the Baptist. Matthew simply gives us this brief reference in verse 12 that Jesus heard John had been imprisoned. He doesn't elaborate on this. He will when we get to Matthew chapter 14 and the first 12 verses of that chapter. Matthew will give us a lot more detail about this arrest and how it came about. But at this point, Matthew simply gives us the arrest, the detail, excuse me, the, the reference to it as a contributing factor for why Jesus moved to Galilee. What Matthew doesn't mention is that there were a whole number of events that preceded this. In fact, about a whole year of events that took place between the end of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12, where Jesus was uh, doing ministry and, and um, moving about in various places in Israel, many, uh, much of the time down in Galilee. Jesus doing all kinds of things before he finally arrives in Galilee, his ultimate a place where he finally does most of his ministry and most of his miracles, but it certainly wasn't the only place. There was this year, this Judean year, uh, that uh, precedes this. And if you remember, it all sort of started back in chapter 3 when Jesus had gone to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And according to Luke's gospel, this was in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, which would have been about 29 A.D. And then immediately Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or to be tested by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. After that event, we learn from John's gospel in the opening of John's gospel that Jesus had spent the remaining months of the year 29 A.D. in the same area as John the Baptist. John 3.22 says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside 
and he, he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. And he says in John 3.24, for John had not yet been put into prison. John had recorded the baptism of Christ in John chapter 1 and then apparently Jesus stayed around in the area carrying out his ministry in parallel with that to John the Baptist. And during this time, he tells us really of four significant events that took place in the life of Christ. Immediately after his temptation in the wilderness, in John 1, 19 through 34, he makes a brief visit back to uh, John's ministry. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can turn over there with me and kind of follow along here. In John 1, 19, he makes his return back to the area of Jordan where he's sort of uh, reintroduced or, or, or given testimony again by John. Uh, he comes to this area and then uh, we're told he went up in chapter 2 briefly to Galilee for the first of four significant events where he attended the wedding at Cana and turned water into wine. John says this was the first sign that he did as he began to make his way into public ministry. And then after that, there was a second event during the Passover that year. Jesus, we're told in John 2, visited the temple in Jerusalem. He saw the money changers. He saw all the vendors uh, selling all the animals and the sacrifices that would have been sold at a profit for the pilgrims who came to Jerusalem for the feast. And John 2.15 says that Jesus made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out, all, uh, poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away for my, uh, do not make my father's house a house of trade, a place of business, an enterprise of profit, if you will. During the feast in 29 AD, we're told that he performed many signs and a number of people were becoming interested in his ministry from Jerusalem. Third, it was during this visit, John tells us, in John chapter 3, where a prominent teacher named Nicodemus secretly sought Jesus out in the middle of the night to question him about his miracles and his message. It was in that same chapter that we see that he was also having his disciples, as we read earlier, down by the river Jordan, baptizing along with uh, John's disciples. And it was during this time that some of the disciples of John the Baptist actually became jealous of the growing popularity of Jesus. John 3.26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who is the bride, uh, excuse me, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, and I must decrease. 
So here John understood that even while their ministries were overlapping for this brief period of time, God had already ordained that Jesus' own ministry would decrease, excuse me, that John's own ministry would decrease and that Jesus' ministry would increase. And then finally, in John 4, 1, we read this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, we know, of course, uh, this was the fourth significant event where he encounters a Samaritan woman and preaches the gospel in Samaria, uh, among all places, as one of his earliest uh, stops and sees, we might say, a spiritual revival break out in the town of Sychar. All four of those things take place before John is arrested or leading up, we might say, to John's arrest. Matthew 14 explains that John was eventually arrested. It was carried out by Herod Antipas, who was in fact the ruler of Galilee. But although Herod was officially the ruler of Galilee, apparently he spent much of his time down in Judea, down in Jerusalem. He had a lot of political power in Jerusalem. In fact, in Luke 13, verse 31, during Jesus' or one of his visits to Jerusalem, we read that some of the Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. This is Herod Antipas again. Jesus responded, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So Jesus uh, understands that Jerusalem is not a safe place for him because Herod is trying to hunt him down. Eventually they will come face to face when Jesus is put on trial in Jerusalem uh, a, a, a year or two later. Herod is once again there and eager and desires to see Jesus when Pilate sends him over to Herod. But apparently at this point he's just simply uh, putting the pressure on Jesus. Well, he had done the same thing with John. John had publicly criticized and rebuked Herod for divorcing his wife and then convincing his sister-in-law to divorce her husband and then marrying her. And for that, Matthew tells us in Matthew 14, Herod Antipas had John thrown into prison. So even though Herod was technically the ruler up in Galilee, he seems to have had much power down in the area where John was ministering, down in the area of Judea, and perhaps it was because Galilee was, we might say, a rather unruly, um, maybe you might even say uncivilized, at least unsettled. It was difficult to rule. Josephus notes that it wasn't as if he had such a tight grip on everything up there. And so apparently Jesus actually felt safer from Herod Antipas in, in his own territory of Galilee rather than down in Jerusalem. And so Matthew tells us here in Matthew chapter 4, he says that when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now that word for withdraw is a word used several times by Matthew to describe people fleeing from danger. In Matthew 2.12, the Magi withdrew 
when they realized Herod would be angry with them. In Matthew 2.13, Joseph took Mary and Jesus and withdrew to Egypt when he learned that Herod was going to slaughter the babies in Bethlehem. In Matthew 2.22, when Joseph returned to Israel from Egypt and he learned that Herod's son was reigning in Jerusalem, he withdrew to Nazareth for a safe place. In Matthew 12, when Jesus learns the Pharisees are, descri- are conspiring to destroy him, he withdrew from Jerusalem. So over and over again, in the language of Matthew, it's obvious that this, langu- that this word uh, gives some connotation of, of danger. And so even here in the language of, of uh, Matthew 4, 12, it's obvious that the arrest of Jesus made Jesus, uh, the arrest of John the Baptist made Jesus realize it was no longer safe for him to be down in Judea, and so he withdrew to the area of Galilee. And by the way, even before this, Luke 4 tells us that he stopped along the way in his hometown of Nazareth, where he enters into the synagogue on a Sabbath and opens up the scroll of Isaiah and reads from it a messianic prophecy telling the people that this prophecy is fulfilled in their hearing, to which they responded in anger and promptly tried to drag him out of the synagogue and out to a cliff on which their city was built and throw Jesus over the cliff. And so he withdrew even from Nazareth, finding a safe place finally in Capernaum. Now, none of this, of course, was because Jesus was fearful of men. None of it was uh, because he was fearful for his life. He knew that he had come into the world in order to lay down his life at the hands of sinful men. But he also knew that it wasn't yet his time. In fact, in John 7, 1, we read that Jesus went about in Galilee, but he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. A few verses later in John 7, 6, when Jesus' own brothers were trying to convince him to go down to Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths and sort of make a public proclamation about who he is and about his ministry, he said to them, my time has not yet come. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. So Jesus makes his retreat to Galilee because he understands the dangers of Judea. He understands the dangers of Jerusalem. And he'll do ministry there occasionally, but it's not until the end of his ministry that he makes his way steadfastly there, determined not only to go there, but to stay there, knowing that it will eventually lead to his destruction. It's a shame, really. John 3.19 says that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Even in the midst of the dominant religious culture of Jerusalem, it was actually the place where Jesus felt most unsafe, most unwelcomed, most in danger. John 1, 9 and 10 say, The true light which gives light to every person was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, 
And his own people did not receive him. That's the ultimate reality of why Jesus started his ministry in a place so remote from the temple, so remote from Jerusalem. This is the nature of sometimes religious life that it actually blinds people to the light. It blinds people to the truth. It blinds them against Christ. They might be deeply involved with a temple. They might be deeply involved with a church. But in reality, they want nothing to do with Jesus and nothing to do with his message. Well, Jesus understood this. He clearly understood two things. First, he understood that there was an appointed time when he would go to Jerusalem and die, and that time had not yet come. And secondly, he understood that God had actually arranged it this way. He had arranged it that Jerusalem would be unwelcoming and that Jesus would carry out most of his ministry in Galilee. Which brings us to our second factor in Matthew's explanation of why Jesus carried out his ministry in Galilee. And that is the, not just the silencing of John, but the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, as we see in verse uh, 13 through 16. All of this, you might say, would appear on the surface to be just sort of these human factors... Things like a wicked ruler wanting to persecute prophets and destroy the Messiah. But in reality, God had actually uh, purposed all of these things. Like Joseph, you remember back in the book of Genesis, whose brothers sold him into slavery. And he concludes at the end of his life, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Well, Herod certainly had his wicked desires. And it may appear that it was his desires that were forcing Jesus to move to Galilee. But the ultimate source the ultimate uh, uh, prompt the ultimate source of all this was the sovereignty of God he had appointed that Jesus's primary ministry would take place in the north of Israel and Matthew demonstrates this by quoting Old Testament prophecy where God foretold all of this would happen hundreds of years before it ever took place He actually quotes out of Isaiah chapter 9 where Isaiah looks ahead to the messianic age when a child will be born and a son will be given and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And Isaiah opens up that chapter by saying at that time when the Messiah comes he says there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Now to understand that prophecy, you really have to understand what Isaiah was telling the people in the context, particularly back in chapter 8, where people, he says, had rejected the law of God. They had uh, rejected the testimonies of God. Instead, he rebukes them for turning to mediums and necromancers and spiritualists for their answers. In their sin, they were seeking out answers, if you will, from earthly and uh, sensual sources. But, as Isaiah explains to them, their sin only plunged them into more confusion, into more darkness. In fact, Isaiah pictures them coming under the judgment of God and under the consequences of their sin. 
until they reach the point where their own economy collapses, where their own uh, state of of, uh, turmoil leads them to distress and hunger. They actually become enraged, he says at the end of Isaiah 8, first at their king and at their government for whom they blame all of their problems, even though it really is the result of their own sin, their own rebellion. They just blame the system. They blame the government or anything they can for the place they find themselves. And then, Isaiah says, they turn their faces upward and they begin to curse and blame God. They literally find themselves at the end of their ropes. They find themselves with no answers to all of their turmoil. And Isaiah says at the end of Isaiah 8, they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So they're angry at God for their situation. They look around the earth and no one around them seems to have answers either. And they just feel more and more lost, more and more anguish, more and more dejected, more and more darkness in their life. Everywhere they turn, it's one frustration after another. Anxiety and anger continue to build at every effort that only seems to multiply their angst until they ultimately are plunged into the gloom of anguish, walking around utterly with no hope remaining. And in a vivid picture, Isaiah pictures these people finding themselves in the midst of distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish. And he says they're finally driven into deep or thick darkness. The situation just gets worse. To say it another way, as they rejected God and looked to themselves and to the world for answers, it only compounded their darkness. Now this is the same truth that Jesus will teach later in his ministry in Luke chapter 11. He gives this illustration about this sort of darkness that takes place in your life. He says the eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. It's very simple. He's saying the eye is what allows the light in. And when the eye is good, it can communicate through the nervous system to all of the parts of the body, giving direction, giving safety, uh, giving balance, giving all of those things. When your eye is healthy, it delivers light to every part of your body. But when your eye is not healthy, when it's not sound, when it's not good, then it essentially darkens every part of your body. And then Jesus goes on to say this, then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with, it, with its rays. Jesus is saying this. You need to watch out for yourself spiritually. You need to watch out for yourself morally. You need to be attuned to the fact that what you think is light in the sense of your own opinions and your own uh, thoughts and your own awareness of the world, you need to be very careful lest what you think is guiding you 
in your judgments and your decisions through life every day, you need to be very careful that that is in fact not darkness. This is the state of every man and woman born in the world. They're born with this kind of darkness. And following the darkness, just like Isaiah said of the people in his day, they're plunged into further darkness, deep darkness, as they go from one frustrating experience, one frustrating relationship, one frustrating environment and episode to the next. But Jesus says, if your light is healthy, if your eye is healthy, that is to say, your heart, if it can take in spiritual light, if it can receive the truths of Jesus Christ, if it has all of that, then it will illumine your whole body, your whole life. The Bible says that when people reject God, the consequence in Ephesians 4.17 is that you walk in the futility of your mind, being darkened in your understanding and excluded from the life of God. When you reject Christ, when you reject biblical authority, when you reject biblical principles, when you refuse to submit your life to it, when you turn over and over again to your own opinions, to earthly solutions for earthly problems, you only compound the darkness in your life. You compound the misery in your life and you are driven into deeper darkness, confusion in your sin. You can feel like you're trying so hard, but you just find failure and frustration and the anguish of gloom envelops you. One foolish decision after another leads to more and more foolish decisions and more and more darkness. Now, the good news, of course, is that there's a source of light. It doesn't come from within you. It's not something that arises from within. It is a light, just like the light of creation, which gives life to everything around it. There's a light that comes from outside of yourself. By God's grace, he breaks through all of the darkness and he shines his light into the heart of those who receive him. It's a light that comes from God, from outside of you, but has the capacity to enlighten your whole world. And Isaiah, back in Isaiah 9, is telling us that the beginning of all that would actually take place in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Or Naphtali. Now, these two territories were in the northern part of Israel, the part that would eventually become Galilee. In fact, Isaiah calls it by the way of the sea, referring to the Sea of Galilee, along with the Jordan River, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, it was designated Galilee of the Gentiles because these were the territories that always bordered the Gentile, the Gentile nations of Syria and Assyria and all of the, the, their pagan rituals, all of their pagan culture. And so they were constantly being influenced and pressured by those Gentile ideas, much like our own borders in our own country. When you go down close to the border, you begin to experience some of the culture of the nations that are right beyond that border. You begin to experience some of their food, some of their language, some of their influences. Well, this place of, of Galilee was influenced by the pagan nations which, which uh, bordered it and bumped up against it. 
And so it was, in the history of Israel, always looked at as Galilee of the Gentiles, the place where the Gentiles influenced and traversed and brought in their pagan ideas and pagan worship. In some ways, it was always the most bleak part of Israel, spiritually speaking. The ones that uh, turned away to idolatry first before the rest of Israel would eventually follow. But, as something of a testimony of God's power over darkness, He sovereignly sends His glorious light right into the heart of this dark area. And as something of a testimony of God's grace, He shows us that His favor is poured out on this area which felt so much the anguish of their darkness. And the anguish, by the way, even of His wrath because they were the areas that were first invaded by Israel's enemies when God did bring judgment. But He's telling us in Isaiah that they would have the light. That the light would actually penetrate and shine there before it shined anywhere else it's not a light that they would produce it's not a light that they were responsible for but it was a light that would be sent by the sovereignty of God as an act of his mercy this light of course was the Messiah and it came through Jesus Christ and his ministry there which takes us by the way to the third and final factor that Matthew gives us that really helps us explain Jesus's ministry in Galilee and that is the substance of his message the substance of his message Matthew 4 17 Matthew simply says from that time Jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand that is the one sentence summary of Jesus's ministry and his message one sentence summary, if you will, of the light. If you want to find the light, you need to repent. You need to repent. This is what was shining in Galilee. This was the message that God had sent. This was the light that was breaking forth. It was a message of repentance. Now, you may not consider that light because you don't want to hear the message from God and the message of repentance. But what Matthew is telling us is that if you ever want to find the light of God, if you ever want to hear the message of life, if you want to understand the way that this was penetrating through the darkness, if you want to grasp all of that, then the answer is simple. Repent. Repent. Turn away from your sin and turn your life over to God. This was his message to Israel telling them that the kingdom of heaven, the messianic age that was promised by Isaiah had dawned on them and for them to, to not only have it come near but for them to actually enter into it, they had to repent. Now when you begin to understand that message, it makes all the more sense that God would shine forth this light somewhere like Galilee of the Gentiles. It makes so much sense that he would shine it where there's just darkness. Because this message is particularly aimed at those who are in darkness. It's aimed at those who need to repent. Of course, Jerusalem was also in darkness as well, but they were less aware of it. 
Theirs was a darkness under the cloak of religious activity. Nevertheless, they needed this message as well. They were more resistant to it, but they needed it. In fact, in John 9.39, some of the religious Pharisees in Jerusalem confronted Jesus and He told them, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. That is to say, when you realize the darkness that you're in, when you realize the fact that you cannot see, when you realize and admit and claim the fact that you are blind, that is when you will be able to see. The problem with the Pharisees, the problem with Jerusalem, the problem with much of Judea is that they all thought they could see. They all thought that they had the answers. They all thought that they were religious enough for God. In fact, in the next verse, John 9, 40, it says some of the Pharisees near him heard him say these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Later on in Matthew's gospel, when some religious people were criticizing Jesus for eating and gathering with tax collectors and sinners, he tells them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. This is why Jesus' ministry began and was so prominent in Galilee. Because this is where people were more ready to realize, more ready to hear that they were sick. And this is why God sent the light into the world so that if you're willing to recognize your spiritual blindness, your spiritual sickness, your spiritual despair, God too can bring you light. He can bring you healing. He can bring hope. He can bring awareness. He can bring light into the confusion and the darkness of your world. He can show you the pathway to life. Life eternal. Salvation. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, how grateful we are, those of us who have received the light that you've enlightened our darkened hearts. No more gloom, no more anguish, no more despair. We pray, O oh Father, that you would open up the hearts of those who've yet to receive you, who perhaps are hearing this message and still in the darkness. Rescue them from this terrible darkness that binds their hearts. Cause the light of Christ to shine in. You who spoke and light came into existence, would you speak into their hearts and shine the light of Christ? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.